Hey everybody, Matt Gurney here. We had some technical issues this weekend at the line. Unfortunately, our YouTube video was lost and our audio recording of what would have been our podcast was choppy. What I've been able to do here is to cut it up. I was able to go into the sloppy, broken audio file and pull out some of what Jen and I had to say. Unfortunately, some of it was lost. We have been able to capture a lot of it, though. So this, the fourth episode of our experimental podcast, will be a little more edited and curated than normal because you're going to hear me popping in and out, basically saying, and now we're going to talk about this. Unfortunately, this is kind of how I had to fill in the blanks for some of the stuff that was either lost or scrambled. In any case, we hope you enjoy the first segment where Jen explains why the economists are mad at her. The economists are mad at us because of our blurb last week where we were talking a bit about uh, uh, inflation. We were discussing a little bit about Pierre Polyevre and his attacks on sort of the Bank of Canada. And bluntly, I think a lot of them interpreted that blurb in a way that I didn't intend when or when I wrote it. So that's that's on me, not on them. But I think a lot of them read that blurb as me saying, well, clearly inflation is being caused by loose monetary policy. That's not actually what I wrote, though, but I can see where they, they, they would necessarily come, they would come to that conclusion. That's not what I wrote. And that's not what I think. Um, basically, what I wrote was to the effect of the experts in a lot of different spheres, but including economists, have been wrong on a lot of different things and a lot of predictions of late. And that's probably because things are just so completely unstable, unstable at the moment that nothing is predictable. But, you know, there's sort of this like this weird sort of confidence game that a lot of them seem to be playing where they're, they're instead of acknowledging that they were wrong and just owning it and 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 moving forward and, and course correcting there's almost like a triple doubling and a tripling down of 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 their of, of confidence in their in their positions it's not only economists who are guilty of this i mean you saw this a lot during covid and things like that as well um and and my argument was always like that this sort of false confidence in attempting to predict the unpredictable is actually feeding the populist um, uh, wave. It's feeding people like um, Polyev because at this point, there's so little faith in the institutions that when he attacks things like the Bank of Canada, people just cheer him on because they don't, they don't have faith in the Bank of Canada anymore. They don't have faith in a lot of these institutional forms. So um, that was kind of more my point. Uh, for the record, I don't think that monetary policy is solely responsible for our inflationary situation. I think that probably our inflationary situation is exceptionally complicated, and I think there's lots of things factoring into it. I do think that probably monetary policy is playing a part or a role in it. And whenever I sort of challenge people privately on some of that stuff, I get a really um, interesting and defensive reaction. And it, that makes me think that there are a lot of very smart people who are emotionally... Um, invested in the idea that monetary policy isn't responsible for this. Other things are responsible. Supply chain issues, uh, demand side issues, blah, 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 all these sorts of things. And that kind of raises a red flag for me because it's like, okay, but what if all of these things are contributing factors? And there's, it's, it's, you know, maybe we just don't know. Like the other thing is maybe we just literally don't know right now and can't know for the, for the, for the next, you know, six to 18 months, then what do we do? Right. Um, so yeah, I, I, I got a lot of uh, uh, steaming economist anger and and uh, my, my husband was giving me a lot of angry economist face, which is quite the face from my husband. It's a lot like this, excuse me, like that. 
It's a shame it's the intense. podcast listeners will never see the angry. They'll never see. Face. They'll never see my 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 angry husband economist face. But it comes out on occasion. But it's very intense. It's very intense. Anyway, as a result, we 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 ran a, a piece by Stephen Gordon, who um, uh, tried to correct some of the the stuff that he felt was wrong in, in in the blurb. And like we totally welcome that. We welcome all all rebuttals and things like that of that nature. And we really love having Stephen Gordon write for us. But even when I was reading, I do, the, I do the, love having Stephen oh. you write for me when I was the NP comment editor. I love having Stephen Gordon write for us. That's, you it know, great. I told him like when he said to me, "Hey, can I write a rebuttal for you guys?" I was like, "Yeah, like we're we're excited." Yeah, and then, totally. And love, then he said, that. "Hey, like this is how I'll do the piece." And I said to him, "Don't don't spare us. Like if you think we're wrong, no. savage us yeah, because just say you're rebuttals wrong. keep us honest, but also like we're delighted that you're writing for us and we hope we hope you write for us more so yeah i mean obviously it would, have been, I, it would have been better I, if I he came, was writing for us to tell us how smart we were and how right we were but well, i'll take I, him out of writing that him. look the economists are always a little bit like mixed on us let's put it that way the economist <laughs> party but um but that being said like uh there i i most i thought that steven's piece was great but i did come away with it with a lot of interesting questions and I kind of laid out those questions in, in, in the dispatch. And Matt, I, I kind of want you to read them to make sure I'm not making stupid questions. But like, he's, he's, he's um, in, in that piece sort of pointing out some baselines and talking about some assumptions about, about, about sort of um, uh, currency expansions, maybe the better way to put it, um, that, that, that just raise more questions for me. And, and I don't know if there's answers to them. I really don't. But um, I'm just open to the idea that basically none of our experts have a handle on the economy right now and that's scary right and i think that people are right to be concerned about that see i i will obviously read what you're writing before we publish it but i'm not i i'm gonna be able to look at it and go oh neat cool jen that's great like i don't know i i don't have the the educational or uh, ability to properly edit a piece on economics we do have some buddies we will ask to take a look at it in that vein and we've used them before I wish I understood economics better than I do. Like I'm the weirdo nuclear war guy. Like I don't know e economics. Like I know megatons. Um, but the one thing I will say, the only thought I have on this issue, and then we, then we can move on because for me, the takeaway is we got Stephen Gordon to write us a column and that's, that's a win in my books. Um, the thing that I would want an answer to, and it's the question that is really hard to get an answer to. I, I'm a jerk about asking this question sometime don't tell me what you were wrong about. Don't tell me that you regret being wrong. The only thing I'm ever interested in is why were you wrong? And I, I've got this Ooh. weird obsession about this. I've mentioned these two before. I'm the kind of nerd that reads accident investigation reports, like plane crashes, space shuttle blows up. Like I'll actually read the investigation report. I don't care about what happened. I want to know why it happened. And, you know, when, when we have, uh, it was a few months ago, we, we interviewed uh, Trevor Toome uh, here, well, I did, uh, for the line, and we ran a, a big kind of primer on inflation. One of the issues I raised with him then is how the overwhelming uh, consensus among experts in recent years has been that inflation was not going to happen. And then when it became unavoidable to um, acknowledge that it was happening, it was that it would be transitory. And then now that it has become clear that it is not transitory, and what I want to know, and I don't mean to be a jerk about this, but this is kind of the question that you kind of sound like an asshole asking is, but why were you wrong? What was, yeah. what was it that was, that led you to believe it wasn't a big deal? Was it something you didn't know? Was it something that you were wrong about? Was it an assumption on your part? Was it groupthink? 
Like, and these, these are the questions I, I want to know. I do not know what is driving inflation. I've, I've read the articles. I've talked to these guys. I, I don't have any theories, but I'm always fascinated when the, the smart people are wrong about something. It's not that they're not smart. Something went wrong in their data, in the analysis, or in, in the communication. That's what I find interesting. So Tiff Macklem, uh, the, the, the head of the Bank of Canada, said a few days ago, yeah, we were wrong about inflation. Like, we, we made mistakes there. Tiff, yeah, I, I think that's fine. Good. About. Like, that's, like, yeah. I just don't mean the conclusion. I mean, like, yeah. what was the failure? What specifically, what was the failure? It, yeah. it is very hard to get people to answer that question. And this is something I've asked many times in my career in many circumstances. People will normally admit they're wrong when the facts become overwhelming, but it's very hard for them to tell you why they were wrong. What, what, what was the error in the process? Yeah. I mean, the other interesting thing in all of this is that, so right now I'm having some interesting conversations with Ken Bosenkohl, and maybe we'll get him on here to chat about this, but we were talking to him about, um, he was one of the, the, the people who was steaming at us when he, when he read our, our piece, and, and I got him to, to okay, well, what, what do you think we got wrong? And we had a really productive conversation out of that. Um, at which point I kind of have to be like, yeah, I think you've, you've, you've over, overstated our thesis a little bit here because I don't think that we said monetary policy is causing inflation. That, that wasn't, and if, that, if that's the way that came across again, that, that was not quite what I was trying to get at here. That was not the point I was trying to make. But we, in the course of our conversation, we had a great, great chat. Um, and his position was he's worried about essentially the Bank of Canada um, uh, hit, hitting the, the um, uh, uh, or sorry, increasing the interest rates too fast, too soon, and effectively um, putting us into a stagflationary crisis. Yeah, tanking so putting the economy. Us in, yeah, I know. Tanking the, tanking the economy while at the same time watching, the, watching the, the price of the goods and services go up because a lot of the cost, a lot of the reason why the price of the goods and services is going up are factors way beyond our control. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I could totally see that happening. Like I, I, can, I can completely understand where you're coming from. Um, and if you are deeply invested in the position that your monetary policy has had basically no impact on inflation, that's the risk. Like, you're right. That is, that is what we are staring down the barrel of. How confident are you of that? Like, like, cause I, my, my theory at this point is that I think we're damned if we do damned if we don't, because I think there are so many factors contributing to inflation at this point, And we only have control over some of them. That would be my theory right now. Um, but I don't know. Well, look, and I, really, I think I think to be honest with you, nobody really knows. That's my suspicion. For my planning purposes, I'm assuming we're having a recession in the next six to eighteen months, and it could be an unpleasant oh, yeah. one. And I'm already sort of looking around my own personal finances and wondering how recession-proofed are we right now. And I think the answer to that question is eh, not bad. It could be better. Having dispensed with why the economists were angry with us, we decided to go out and try to provoke some more people. I opened by noting that Jen has already written a column that covers a lot of Elon Musk's uh, proposed acquisition of Twitter, but I wanted to talk about a different part of it. I wanted to talk about the morality of money and when you owe your fellow human a share of what you have. You already wrote this week a column about Elon Musk buying Twitter. I don't have anything to add to that. I think you have put a big check mark next to the tw Twitter acquisition box. But it has given me an opportunity to unload something off my chest, a burden I carry. And by the way, this is the smallest of gripes, okay? Like this is, this is petty, this is small beer, I'm acknowledging that. One of the things that comes up whenever Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates does anything 
is this sort of sneering response of, you know, why isn't that billionaire fixing hunger or why isn't this billionaire fixing homelessness? And it just bothers me that there's so many people out there who think they know better than the billionaires how to spend the billionaires money. And, and as I write in the blurb, I know it's like weird, like, hey, like Matt Gurney takes a strong stand in defense of billionaires. Like that's like, that's not really what I'm doing here. Like, I understand that the existence of billionaires is itself controversial. Some people think they represent inherently a failure of capitalism or a failure of the social welfare state or a failure to redistribute wealth effectively. People think billionaires are inherently immoral. And I, I'm okay, whatever. I don't think that, but you can have that view. What, what, what makes me wonder about this, and we actually, we recently had a fun debate in Ontario this week because the NDP have now released their platform and to avoid antagonizing voters before the upcoming provincial election, the NDP have adopted a really interesting definition of middle class. Do you want to yeah. know? When the, you want to know when the middle class ends? Everyone at ninety nine percent of the population. Yeah. yeah. So you are now considered beyond the middle class. You are now considered wealthier than the middle class if your individual income is below. $200,000. So a, a couple in Ontario could each be making $199,999. Okay, you're and still middle class. And yeah. I, I find these discussions interesting, right? Because the notion that Elon Musk owes the world charity, philanthropy, uh, donations to, to good causes, right? I think is interesting. Maybe, maybe it's true. But what do I owe the world? And what, like, I am closer in terms of my net worth to the dirt poor than I am to Elon Musk. Like, that's the the delta in dollars. I am much closer to the the dirt poor than to Elon Musk. But psychologically, am I closer to Musk or the poor? And there, there's a quote I mentioned in, in my blurb where I say, um, and I, I wish I remember who the hell said this. And in the blurb, I have specifically asked for help uh, from, from um, the, the audience, uh, the readers, the viewers, the listeners. I don't remember where this quote is from, and I would like someone to steer me to it. But it was, it was someone who said, when I was poor, I thought being rich meant being able to buy a hamburger whenever I wanted. Mm. Like, like, you know, where the expenditure of five bucks on a burger if I was peckish without having to stress about the five bucks, that to me was wealth. So if I or you or anyone else says, oh, look at Musk spending 44 billion bucks to buy Twitter, that's a waste of money. He should have given that to charity. I wanna know what the person who thinks that has given to charity that year. Where, where does the moral responsibility to give to charity kick in? Is it only billion? Or to give everything to charity, or right? To like it's not just it's, it's it's not even just a little. It's the idea that like this person should not be able to exist with this level of wealth, and so for there is a point at which someone should be giving away basically all of their wealth. Is it? And this also kind of gets into the really interesting exponential nature of wealth, mm -hmm. right? Because I mean, you can say like you are part of the one percent, and that's fine, but the actual lifestyle that someone who's just in the one percent might not be as extravagant as you think. Someone who's earning 400, the couple that's earning $400,000 in Toronto, for example, that person is undeniably by any statistical measure wealthy. But the lifestyle that they're living in downtown Toronto is probably not what you think it is. They're probably not, you know, 
going around eating out every night, you know, drinking Cristal and cocaine and in, in limousines. That's probably not the lifestyle they're actually living. Whereas the difference between, you know, the, the lifestyle of the bottom 1% versus the bot sort of the top sort of 0.1% versus the 0.01%, the, the difference between the, that in that 1% curve is an exponential difference, right? And people don't seem to actually understand how that curve actually works in reality, because there's a, there is a, a, a radical difference between someone who's merely 1% versus someone who's 0.1% versus one versus someone who's 0.01%. Right. It's, it, it's, it's not, it's not a linear curve. It is an exponential curve. I'm trying to figure out, I don't know what the 1% is in Canada. I, I, I actually I don't. anything. I think, I, I actually think it's over, it's over like a hundred thousand dollars or no, $200,000 in income, in household income, in household income, I think. Household income. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, that's interesting. I'll, I'll I'll look that up later. But but but, no, you're but, right. but then but but then this also gets really interesting because two hundred thousand dollars if you're living in downtown Toronto is totally radically different than two hundred thousand dollars if you're living in Medicine Hat or Squamish. Yep. You know, like the, that is that is a different. You're in a different universe, right? I, in terms of the lifestyle you can afford. I, I, what I just find fascinating is how there are a lot of people out there who are living comfortable lives they're 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 not like they still have to work they got bills to pay all that stuff i'm not saying they're an easy street but they look at a guy like musk and they're like i know better how to spend their money and i wonder what a guy a, a single mom three kids living on social dis uh, social benefits because they're they're disabled looking at that guy criticizing how musk sends his money and it's like you ordered uber eats in twice this week and I, i'm just i just think there is a lack of awareness among many in in Canada, but I would I would say probably Western society broadly here, the middle class looks with envy upon the rich, and I don't know if it occurs to them the envious eyes being cast upon them. And well, then that there this also starts to become a, qu a question of global wealth as well. Is it moral for Canada to have the amount of wealth we do when there's as much poverty in the world? course not you can you can apply the same question you can apply the same question to the wealthy world writ, writ large i mean what is what is the, the real question is here what is an immoral amount of wealth mm -hmm. I, well i mean on a global standard i mean this is i mean this is the thing right with stephen gordon's getting a lot of love uh in this episode because one of the points he has always made is that everybody thinks they're middle class and yeah. if you go and start telling canadians actually by global standards you are you are extravagantly rich and yeah. what it is immoral for you to be spending money on these luxuries and luxuries can be different things like after we finish this video game i'm taking my son to the leaf game and the amount of money i'm going to spend on doing that tonight which it could probably feed a village like it could bring health care to, to a bunch of, of children. And it's an expense I'm not even going to I'm not even going to notice here. I think Canadians are very class blind in weird ways. And I don't mean to each other, but I mean to themselves. And I think mm. there is um, I don't know. And this whole thing, like I know I know it sounds weird, like the line defends billionaires. And I really don't mean it that way. What I'm just asking for is can all of us have more of a sense of where we fit into the national or even as you said global hierarchy of privilege here and there are very few people in this country they exist who are living in absolute destitute poverty 
a lower middle class person in this country is likely light years ahead of a significant chunk of humanity. And we don't think about it in that terms. And I think we just, I guess maybe what I'm asking in the simplest way possible here, I'm just asking people to lift their eyes up a little bit. And I'm not asking anyone to feel guilty. I'm not asking anyone to give away their wealth. I'm just maybe asking for some perspective. It's just, it's, it's very, very easy to criticize Elon Musk's and his sort of lack of philanthropy instead of looking at yourself and what about your philanthropy? I would be, I, I would just um, take the average middle-class Canadian and have someone who's truly living either in absolute destitution or right on the bubble of destitution and just invite them over to your house, show them what's in your fridge, show them the linens on, on your bed, show them the, 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 the shoes your kids are wearing and the car you're driving. I, I don't know. I, I think it would be very revealing for the middle class in Canada to discover. And I, I'm actually I'm actually sympathetic, as you and I have talked about. There's a lot like the middle class in, in this country is under pressure. It's under siege. Housing alone could have tectonic shifts in our society. But I just still think there is a, a real lack of, of self-awareness among many when it comes to these issues. Once we were done talking about Elon Musk and billionaires, Jen wanted to talk about the recent renaming controversy at Ryerson University, which will no longer be called Ryerson University. Folks, we did lose a part of this conversation, unfortunately. Some of the audio was lost. Not much of it, though, just a bit at the introduction. So you'll hear us picking up midstream here, where I was surprised to find out that Jen had gone to school in Toronto. I knew she had worked in Toronto, but until she reminded me of this, or maybe told me for the first time, I did not know that she had done her undergraduate work in my hometown. I graduated from Ryerson in 2006, much to their horror. Is that why you were, is that why you were in Toronto for the Torstar internships? Yes, that's right. Okay, because I knew you had- I lived in Toronto for several years. No, I knew that, but I, I thought you came here for work. I didn't realize you had been here already. Mm -mm. No, and I, 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 I did, and I, uh, throughout half of that was also working at the Toronto Star in their radio room, and then got internships at the Globe and the Star afterwards. So, and then I moved to the Middle East. Um, anyway, so yes, I was, I, I was in Toronto for, for a lot of years, and I, you know, to be honest with you, I know I give Toronto a hard time because I'm a Calgarian now, but, uh, I, I loved living in Toronto. I thought it was an absolutely fantastic city. When, when, in my, in my early twenties, it was, it was great totally great um had a wonderful 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 time especially at that time when you know the rent prices were well, they were still high but they weren't like I could still afford you know bachelor apartment for I think I paid like $900 a month or something like that which was high but you know I could afford that while working a union job two or three shifts a week at the Toronto Star and where, and and where was your apartment was oh I had a couple of apartments I was yeah, I was, I was lived on King Street. I lived at Young and Egg. I lived in a whole bunch of places. I think I moved like every year or something like that in pursuit of cheaper accommodation. But uh, in beaches, I lived in the beaches. Um, so I was all over the place. Um, and some really shitty apartments too. Like I lived in some absolute shitholes. But uh, anyway, I, I had a great time. It's what you do in your 20s, right? But um, anyway, uh, I went to Ryerson and uh, this week Ryerson announced its new name change. It's to Toronto Metropolitan University. Which is the blandest, most inoffensive name that you could possibly come up for a university. So, you know, the history of this is really interesting because, of course, Ryerson was um, uh, defenestrated, and you know he was um, deemed unsuitable as a as a founder 
kind of at the height of the North American craze for you know bringing down statues and right like there was a there was a bit of a there was a moral panic on those sorts of issues at that particular moment and and Canada of course is dealing with reconciliation and it's been sort of long established in in common mythology that Egerton Ryerson the founder of, of Ryerson was one of the quote-unquote architects of the residential school system so this was deemed unacceptable his his statue got got you know, um, toppled from the front of the school and the school actually relatively quickly agreed to capitulate and call itself X universities, you know, pending a new name change kind of thing. Problem was history is complicated. And what it became taboo to note was that Ryerson was not the quote unquote architect of the residential school system. Ryerson was actually a progressive radical a public educational um, reformer and uh, you know was absolutely pushing for more um, equal access to public education um, and in that role he was asked to contribute to a government report about you know how to deal with uh, aboriginal and first nations populations in that role he contributes to a government report that that says yes yes you know, essentially first nations or and indigenous people cannot be civilized they have to be separated from the population and um uh taught separately in 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 these sorts of uh, uh separate separate school systems so he did condone the idea of a residential school system and he did so using you know prototypically ugly language for for someone of his time but he well, actually died in, in eight, savages stuff like that yeah, exactly. Um, but he then dies in 1882. And the first uh, residential school system um, stuff isn't put into the Indian Act until like 1880. So like, he wasn't an architect of the system, he didn't create it. He was just somebody who couldn't who who supported it in in who made an argument for it, but he was hardly unique in that he was asked to contribute to a government report on the subject. Um, and I think uh, certain forms of residential school systems had already existed in, in Quebec at this point. So like, it, by all means, fault the guy for his erroneous contemporaneous opinions and, and, and how they do not match with modern values. I don't think there's any dispute on that. But the guy wasn't like coming up with the plan. He wasn't the one being like, yeah, let's take away the, 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 the indigenous kids from their parent. Like that wasn't, he didn't, he supported these ideas he didn't, he wasn't the architect of them. He didn't come up with them. He didn't like that. That wasn't the role he, he, he played there. So do I think he deserves some, some post-hoc historical accountability for, for supporting this idea? Sure. But this is a hell of a thing to hang the entire guy's legacy off of. And, and, and it's a hell of a thing to undermine his actual extensive, you know, career trying to um, expand public education for the kids of Ontario um, because he, you know, contributed a, a bad opinion to a report. Like this is an argued, argued for a bad thing. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's a bit of a stretch to pin the um, residential system on him as there has been an attempt to do. Um, and I think that, you know, if, if Ryerson were a bit more of a serious institution, they probably would have um, question that and push back on that a little bit more than they did. Uh, I don't really have a problem with them changing the name in principle. Names change, values change, um, and Ryerson's dead, so he doesn't care. <laughs> I mean, he's dead. Uh, you know, and if this is one of those things that, that people need in order to move forward with reconciliation, I guess fine. But 
to be blunt, it just, to me, it speaks to kind of the unseriousness of Ryerson. And it's always been a bit of an unserious school. I mean, back when I was there, it had only just changed its name to from Ryerson Polytechnic to Ryerson University. To me, this was always a bit of a trade school that had pretensions of being a university. And to me, this, this sort of going along with, with the broader kind of panic on a lot of these um, historical injustices, Without, without really challenging them, without really sort of asking whether or not that was appropriate or, 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 or putting any significant pushback. To me, that's just in line with the, 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 the school's kind of lack of, how should I say, academic seriousness, right? Like it's just, it's just, it's just, it's right high, you know? They, they have pretensions to being university and now they have pretensions to certain political persuasions. You know what? I don't know if I don't know enough about Ryerson to know if a school should be named after him. And this is not an issue I'm going to lose any sleep over. I just find it fascinating what the, the, the future is going to condemn us for. It's going to be something. And I don't know what it's going to be, but at some point in the future, they're going to look back at us in the early 21st century and they're going to think, my God, look at those savages. How could they possibly have done whatever i don't know what it'll be my, my Matt, i don't think we're gonna have to wait that long i think that by the time this I, thing goes up we're gonna be condemned on twitter by the end of the by the end of the hour so like let's be clear i'm uh, sure i've said something wrong in all of this but uh well t- twitter is what it is like i i just mean <laughs> more 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 generally speaking if you do not be- if you honestly believe that future generations will find nothing that you believe today to be reprehensible I don't know what to tell you. Like the idea that you in this current moment have reached the pinnacle of human progress. Okay. <laughs> sure. Knock yourself out. All right. Are you ready for me to get, you, do you have anything more to say in this or do you want me to just go full dark here? You, no, I just want to defend Ryerson to some extent or, or TMU to some extent that, uh, and, and point out that like, yes, it had a terrible, it was not like an academically uh, brilliant institution, but it had a great journalism school and journalism is what I wanted to do. So that's where I went. I also got accepted into good schools, Matt. Thank you. You know what? The funny thing is, I mean, you know this, and I guess <laughs> some of the listeners would have heard it or viewers over the years. I never had any intention of being a journalist. I had a couple of weird, happy, but weird coincidences happen that ended up making me an intern at the National Post for a summer because like I had plans that fell through and I needed to figure out something to do. And I was back in Toronto anyway for the summer from school. And basically that put me on the trajectory where like not all that many years later, I'm running the National Post editorial board. A lot of people who were my age contemporaries doing absolutely everything right but like one of my summer plans falling through and making like a good phone call set me on this trajectory. Life is weird, but no, yeah. When I would have been doing OA um, applications in OAC grade 13 in Ontario, I wouldn't have looked at Ryerson, not, not only because of its reputation, because the journalism program wouldn't have interested me. It had not occurred to me to head in that direction. Well, having covered all that stuff, I decided it was time to make our podcast really dark and tell Jen what I have been worried about lately. Unfortunately, we did lose, I think, about five minutes of this conversation. The recording was just completely garbled. But I think what you're going to hear now will more or less give you the gist of what I'm worried about. Okay, you ready? Let's go. I think Putin's going to nuke something. Oh, good. Okay, cool. Excellent. That's a great idea. Let me, let me explain why. First of yeah. all, two comments to make. One of them, 
I might, I, I would probably on record say that the risk of a nuclear uh, use is objectively low. Uh, maybe it's 10%. But a year ago, it would have been 0%. And a month ago, it would have been 2%. And a, two weeks ago, it would have been 5%. And now I think it's 10%. You, yeah, you, you, you were talking me off the ledge not so long ago, I do recall. What I want, what I want you and the readers and the viewers and the listeners to consider is a very simple question. How does Putin get out of this? What is his off-ramp? I see none. I don't see a possibility of a negotiated diplomatic solution at this point. I don't think he'd accept it, and I think the Ukrainians are too angry to even consider it. I don't think Putin has viable military victory uh, options left to him. The Russian military is getting weaker every day this fight goes on. The Ukrainian military is getting stronger as we dump in uh, more and better weapons. And the, um, the sanctions, I don't think, ha have proven sufficient to, to bring Russia down here. So I'm thinking, I'm, like, I'm just gaming this out here. What I am doing is I am looking for a way to resolve this crisis. Essentially, you got to give them the Donbass. It's not ours to give. Ukrainians aren't going to I know. I know. But, but Ukrainians have to give them the Donbass. That's that's the only obvious way out I can see. He can claim a victory on that. They're giving off territory. The Ukrainians would be giving up territory that effectively they don't really control and that's been under war anyway. Um, I mean, it's a it's a it's a strategic and and it's a strategically useful territory. But the problem is that I don't think Putin stops unless Ukraine actually makes a promise not to join NATO. And like, however this ends, Ukraine has to join NATO after this. Otherwise, they'll have no protection going forward, and there'll be nothing to stop Ukraine from or Russia from invading again, and perhaps potentially with greater and more organized forces. So, so you, I mean, they got to fight this one. You've just done what I've been doing the last few days. Yeah. Where yeah. The only solution you can come up with is impossible. Yeah. So well, it's not impossible. It might happen, but yeah, it's stalemate. They're in a stalemate. It's a stalemate. I think the best outcome that does not involve someone getting flash fried is a, a military stalemate that grinds on long enough that, the, that the, the forces exhaust themselves and some kind of negotiated truce becomes inevitable. What worries me is that Putin likely views this contest for himself personally as a matter of regime survival so well this is this is where this is where there are too many unknowns right like is it regime survival like i doesn't have to be if he thinks it is but do we know what he thinks right like that's that's where this becomes completely speculative no and the reason i've been thinking about it a lot this week is because you know, um, about, about earlier this week, uh, Sergei uh, Lavrov, the, the the Russian foreign minister, explicitly warned of uh, nuclear use um, and said mm -hmm. uh, the, the the danger of nuclear war is very very high. Two days later, Putin, in in remarks to the public, discussed in vague terms, but it was clear what he was talking about, like overwhelming Russian might, stunning our enemies who threaten our existence. Last week a lot of talk about how the West is backing us into a corner or how we'll be forced to take dramatic action. I'm not, I'm not naive and I'm not an idiot. There is a very reasonable possible explanation for this. The Kremlin is orchestrating an information campaign to make us worry.
and hey, maybe on me it's working. You know that they to what end? To what? To what? What, uh, what would be the value of making us worry? To go, holy shit, we're putting this guy into a corner and he might nuke us. Therefore, we should not do that. Like to make us so worried that he might do something crazy that we start saying the Ukrainians, do you really need Crimea? Do you really need the Donbass? Like this all could be Putin sort of having a madman strategy, right? And I, mm-hmm. that's very possible. But it's also possible that he's not. And that what we're getting are warnings. And we're, what we're interpreting as bluster is in fact a warning. And what is making me worried here, and again, I would still say overall, I think the risk of nuclear use is, is I, think, I think that is less likely than the opposite. But am I concluding that because I have rationally analyzed all the evidence available, or am I concluding that because I find the alternative unpleasant to think about? And you know, I'm thinking back to three months ago, how many Russian experts were assuring us that he wasn't going to invade Ukraine. The whole thing was a bluff. It was a bluster. He was, he was trying to wring concessions. It was, it was getting the better bargaining position for the negotiating table. Oh, look, he just invaded. And he invaded in a way that made it very clear that it was not a snap decision at the last minute to invade. Like that was an organized plan that had clearly been settled upon many months ago. And we in the West, a lot of us continued to doubt that he was going to make a move. I mean, some people were shocked right until the day the war began. To me, it became obvious to me that he was going to go about two weeks before he did. Up until then, I'd been thinking, "Hmm, I don't know what he's going to do. About two weeks before he rolled, I knew he was going to. And it just feels to me like we're repeating some of that right now. We're we're, We're all finding ways to assure ourselves that he doesn't mean the things he's saying. Maybe he doesn't. That that's demonstrate. That's that's been a dem- demonstrable mistake. When so, when a, when a president and the problem is and there's the problem is there's nothing we can do. He, if he, if he drops the nuke, he drops the nuke. And we just have to take it from there. Yeah. No. Exactly. And I mean, to be clear, uh, in, in case any of the listeners or or viewers are planning on fleeing the cities right now. I don't think it's going to be like we all wake up one morning to blaring air. No, we're not. We're not talking general general exchange here. We're talking about a tactical nuke that he throws onto Kiev or something like that. Yes, I mean, basically, yes. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is where the audio became completely unusable. The only point I can really remember wanting to make in that segment that was lost to us was that I don't think it would be a tactical nuclear bomb dropped on a Ukrainian civilian target. I think it would be on a military target. I think the Russians would be very sensitive to the political ramifications of using a nuclear weapon. So they would, on the one hand, want the shock value of having used one, but they wouldn't want to so appall the world by flattening a city that they just make their own problems worse. Do I like the fact that we're thinking about this at all? No, I really don't. Anyway, folks, like I said, kind of a more edited and curated podcast than usual from us having to kind of splice all these different salvage segments together. But all the same... I hope you enjoyed it. This is episode four of the Lions Experimental Podcast. We will talk with you soon. Thanks so much for listening as always. Take care.